from Kirkco Media. Coming up on the show. The first patient I saw with pulmonary embolism, I was an intern. I was at Duke University. I went down to the ER to admit my patient. She was 25. She'd come in the ED a couple weeks before, pregnant. She was second trimester, tachycardic and short of breath, fast heart rate, couldn't breathe well. She was told she was anxious from her first pregnancy, was sent home, came back. I was there to admit her. But by the time I got to ED, she'd already had a cardiac arrest and died. I went to her autopsy. I have pictures of it to this day. And she had huge blood clots in her lung. I never forgot that. You know, uh, we've both seen a lot of interesting things in medicine, but that really got my eye that something like this not only takes the lives of older patients, but can take the lives of young people who seem to have no particular risk factors. Having trouble catching your breath? Slightly dizzy, maybe. Battling a small cough, perhaps? Nah, it's probably nothing, right? For the patients or doctors listening, we're not trying to make you nuts, but these seemingly benign symptoms might be something that require a second look. And apparently, part of this diagnosis process comes from perspectives that only come from doctors with years of experience. A pulmonary embolism has been deemed a silent killer because most often than not, it's diagnosed only in an autopsy. Yep, when it's too late. Well, today we're joined by a renowned doctor from Cedars-Sinai whose research helps lift the curtain behind a disease that plays hide-and-seek. It's used to hiding and will only present itself if you seek it out. It's a sobering listen, but it's highlighted with hope. This is medicine. We're still practicing. I'm Bill Curtis. So first, my co-host, the quadruple board certified doctor of internal medicine, pulmonary disease, critical care, and neurocritical care, and my very best friend, Dr. Stephen Tabak. How are you doing, Steve? Hey, Bill. Good to see you. We've got a special guest today that I know you're going to like because it's just right up your alley. That's a fact. Our special guest, Dr. Victor Tapson. He's a professor of medicine and director of clinical research at the Women's Guild Lung Institute. He's also associate director of the Pulmonary and Critical Care Division at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center. He's authored more than 200 peer-reviewed manuscripts and a whole bunch of books and book chapters. We're lucky to have him here. Vic, I imagine this past year with COVID has been quite a challenge, and I understand COVID creates all kinds of blood clot issues in your patients. How's it been for you the last year? Uh, it's, it's been tough, uh, Bill, as it has for everyone. COVID caused a lot of problems. A lot of them involve the lung, of course, and many of them actually involve specifically uh, blood clotting in the lung and blood clotting in other places too. So we've been trying to figure out how to deal with, how to, how to treat it, how to diagnose it. It's been not trying, but I think we've made a lot of progress. Why does it cause blood clots? How does the virus do that? Well, it's interesting, but you know, there, there's something that we call endothelial cells that line your blood vessels. These the cells that line the blood vessels become very inflamed and irritated by this virus, and we get something called an endotheliolitis, sort of. And so these viruses get in there, they inflame the lining of the cell, and when that happens, it releases substances from inside the cells. One of them is called tissue factor. It can really get clotting going, and it's more complicated than that. But we certainly learned that in many blood vessel linings, not just the lungs. This develops. Patients get blood clots in their legs called DVT, and they break off and go to the lungs. We call that pulmonary embolism. And we've seen a lot of this. And it's been difficult to try to decide who we should look for it in because a fairly high percentage of patients with COVID do get it. And back in January, we had 10 deaths a day, and which is you know just unprecedented. 
and morale was at an all-time low and, and just the human tragedy of it. And the staff was just reeling every day from the, the terrible emotional trauma. What did you guys do over the hill? When I say over the hill, because Cedars is over the hill from where we're at. How did you folks deal with that, the social devastation, both to the patient's family and also to your staff? I, I can tell you, Stephen, I'm sure you guys did the same thing. It was very difficult, especially early in the pandemic when we weren't letting patients in the room. No one was coming in. And, and later, the same thing. January came along. It was much worse than over the summer for us, too. We didn't really notice a really high death rate the whole first year until that surge after the holidays. Then we noticed something a little different. Now, I don't know if that was a variant, the California variant. We were getting some of the B117 variants. I don't know the reason. We didn't sequence everything right away. I can just tell you, though, we saw what looked like a difference to us. And to handle those problems that you're mentioning, the emotional, social issues, to me, it was a lot of phone calls. You know, we enrolled patients in clinical trials. And normally we would talk to them and say, well, Mrs. Jones, we would like to enroll you in this trial. And I know your husband's on the phone. Let's tell you a little bit about the study. And it was not just like a usual study where we would fill them in on some details. We had answered tons of questions about COVID therapy, everything from other members of their family, how they could prevent it. Uh, so it was a lot of communication, a lot of phone calls. And I think that's really important treatment during this kind of a thing. And it was family members, the patients themselves, isolated patients in the rooms. It, it, you know, Steve, it was terrible. It was terrible. It, it was a lot of communication, a lot of handholding. So I probably can't say the name, but I have a friend of mine who spent 59 days in your ICU and was on the ventilator for a long, long time. And nobody was really too positive about how that was going to turn out. And you guys sent him home and he had to relearn to walk and he lost all kinds of weight, of course. But you guys put him back home among his wife and all of us who love him. And we really appreciate it. Well, I'm glad he did well. Boy, I'll tell you. And I'm sure Steve took care of some of the same kind of folks. We just had some very, very long hospitalizations that were complicated by subsequent, like see someone in the ICU for a long time with whatever they have, COVID or whatever, and then they get a urinary tract infection, and they get a bloodstream infection, they get another kind of pneumonia. So yeah, just like you're saying, Bill, these were complicated patients in many cases. You know, question for you. The general public, I think, is, is very familiar with the idea that if you've had a knee replacement, you're going to need to be put on blood thinners. People have heard, of, you know, if they've been on a long plane flight, they've heard of cases of people developing a blood clot. And I think it's, it's just general knowledge that when you're on an airplane, you should get up and walk around. The mechanism for blood clotting in the COVID patients, pathologically, is it exactly the same as those people who undergo a surgical procedure or those people who are on a long plane flight? Is a blood clot a blood clot? Or is there something, a nuance to COVID patients that we've identified during this past year? I think it's a little bit different. You know, I think people do form clots in their legs. They break off and go to their lungs. But we were seeing patients that came in the hospital, as you suggested earlier, our nurse coordinators drawing blood from COVID patients say, geez, the tube clotted off. I mean, this doesn't happen. Why the tube keeps clotting off? I can't get blood from them. They, they coagulate more easily. We're seeing something called microthrombosis. Uh, small clots in blood vessels. Blood clots in the lung don't start in the lung. They start in the legs and they go to the lung. Were some of these patients getting clots in their lungs? It might even be building up in situ some. I don't think we know, but clots were forming in, in veins that had an IV in that usually would stay open and patent. So I think it was different, Steve. I think this very prothrombotic, as we call it, tendency of COVID was causing problems in a little different way, not just big macroscopic clots in the leg veins breaking off and going to the lungs, but small 
clots, even causing strokes, causing heart problems, causing kidney problems. So we're seeing multi-organ problems from what we call microthrombosis because this organism seems to be much more prothrombotic than the flu or than MERS or SARS or some of the past infections we've seen. In addition to the treatment, I should say, of blood thinning, anticoagulation, have you folks done any research on anti-inflammatory agents, immunotherapy that may have some impact on either prevention or treatment of, of blood clots? We have, and we've certainly done some of the studies on some of the antiviral agents. The early studies on remdesivir. We completed a study on a drug called baricitinib. That's something called a JAK inhibitor. One thing we learned, as you know, in the COVID era is that steroids seem to help. And why do they help? Do they help this cytokine storm? These patients get such immune responses and tremendous inflammation that steroids can tend to kind of shut that down and calm things down. You put someone on steroids for a long time too early and then they get COVID, then they're in trouble because their immune system shut down and can't fight the virus. Once they get COVID, steroids may help. And I think steroids probably help with thrombosis, but right now the data don't prove that. One study published in February suggested that there's no real proof right now that steroids reduce the chance of getting a clot. But it's hard to ignore the fact that if you do the right study, they might because inflammation and coagulation or clotting are so intimately linked. One way we know that is look at obesity. Obesity, we don't think of as an inflammatory disease, but it is. Obesity is chronic inflammation. The more obesity you got, the more inflammation there is. The heavier you are, the more likely you were to be hospitalized if you got COVID, and the more likely you were to get a blood clot. So I think there's really something to that. Personally speaking, you know, to you and I, we live and breathe this type of, of issue, uh, you know, in the ICU. Naturally, it's interesting to us, but was there something in particular that caused you to pull your focus and to dedicate your life to dangerous blood clots and pulmonary hypertension? I can tell you, see, the, the first patient I saw with pulmonary embolism, I was an intern. I was at Duke University. I went down to the ER to admit my patient. She was 25. She'd come in the ED a couple of weeks before, pregnant. She was second trimester, tachycardic and short of breath, fast heart rate, couldn't breathe well. She was told she was anxious from her first pregnancy, was sent home, came back. I was there to admit her, but by the time I got the ED, she'd already had a cardiac arrest and died. I went to her autopsy. I have pictures of it to this day, and she had huge blood clots in her lung. I never forgot that. You know, uh, we've both seen a lot of interesting things in medicine, but that really got my eye that something like this not only takes the lives of older patients, but can take the lives of young people who seem to have no particular risk factors sometimes. So it's always been fascinating to me, and I've maintained my interest. It's one of the most misdiagnosed syndromes in medicine. And one of the most highly litigated syndromes, DVT and pulmonary emboli, why is it so hard to diagnose? Why is it that the general population of physicians out there, why is it that we're still missing so many of these cases? I think a couple of reasons are that, see, the symptoms, as, as you know, are very nonspecific. You're short of breath. You rarely have cough. You might have a little cough. You might in rare instances cough up blood, not nearly as common as people think. You're short of breath. You listen to the lungs, you don't hear anything. They sound normal. You don't hear wheezing like you do in asthma. You don't hear crackles like you do in a pneumonia or fibrosis. You don't hear decreased breath sounds like there's fluid in the lungs. Look at the chest x-ray. Chest x-ray is clear. You have clear x-ray with a big pulmonary You don't see pneumonia, heart failure. So people look at you, they, they list your lungs, they look at your x-ray, say, well, yeah, maybe you got a little asthma or something. I'm not sure what this is. And you're sent home. And we've learned from four or five autopsy studies, if you die from pulmonary embolism, more likely than not, you're not diagnosed until you're dead. And more likely than not, you're not even suspected until you're dead. So see, that, that's right on target. And it's still a problem. So I think, we're, we, I think we've raised awareness, and I hope we have, 
but we still see this. It's still litigated and it still causes a huge problem. So you're absolutely right. So what is the best test at this point to diagnose this? One of the best tests off the bat, I'd say, Bill, and I kind of say it tongue-in-cheek, is using good clinical gestalt. And there's been a study that's been shown by one of my good colleagues over in Belgium. She did a nice study that showed that you have these scoring systems you can look at. Well, the Wells score, the revised Geneva score, the PERC score, to maybe help you if you're suspecting PE, whether you should do a test or not. And what uh, Dr. Penaloza showed was gestalt is better, better even than any of these scoring systems. If you think someone might have PE and there's a reasonable chance they do, you got to go for it. There's a simple blood test called a D-dimer you can do. D-dimer test is negative. It's very unlikely you have a clot. If it's positive, you can't be sure. It's nonspecific. But you got to have a low threshold to go ahead and do a CT scan of the chest. And sure, you're going to maybe do too many CT scans if you suspect it too often, but you don't want to miss this diagnosis. So a good gestalt, think about the diagnosis and think about simple things. Bill, like you've got an unexplained fast heart rate. Why why is your heart rate 110 or 120? Maybe you are anxious, but maybe it's something else. Maybe it's your asthma inhaler, but maybe it's pulmonary embolism. So unexplained fast heart rate, unexplained shortness of breath. Even someone's kind of anxious and just a little bit shorter, but you've got to think about it. So once it comes to your consciousness, I think you're in better shape. So let me bring this into the mix because this is the era of cost containment and you want to minimize testing that's not necessary. And so using a score like the Wells score, which is supposed to help delineate who's the low risk, mid risk and high risk. And obviously if it's a high risk, you're going to treat the patient. If it's a low risk, maybe you're going to let the patient leave your ER. And certainly a seasoned practitioner such as yourself, your gestalt means a lot. But for a young practitioner, who's making an assessment, who's relying heavily on a well score, and who feels pressure to minimize the amount of testing that they're ordering. What kind of a conundrum is that? And where do we go with that? It is a conundrum. And we do have to think about that, SD, for sure. And in the ED, I think you should use these these scoring systems. I think the catch is use a scoring system together with a D-dimer. And if that D-dimer is negative, you're almost always off the hook. If your suspicion is somewhat low or moderate, you're off the hook. If it's very high suspicion, probably nothing should supersede a very high suspicion. So I think what you do is you use those things together. And again, just don't ever second guess a really strong gestalt feeling. But it's a problem. I think the test, testing may get better, make it easier. We're using artificial intelligence now, Steve, machine learning. We've done a couple of protocols now. We've done them with COVID already. We're able to predict COVID with a group we worked with coming up with an AI program without doing a COVID test. We were 99 point something percent accurate predicting COVID. I think the same thing could be done with, with pulmonary embolism. And now, now we've got AI, artificial reading of CT scans too. But I think that's going to come into the, you, you may have seen something on so something TV recently, a robot who was taking histories from people in the ED. It was amazing. I think using machine learning, artificial intelligence together with Gestalt, we're going to do a better job at saving money. But again, when it gets down to see, I've been really lucky. No one's ever pressured me to save money, but we, we do want to use our common sense and, and try. But wait a minute, wait, the patient here talking, are you saying that there are considerations perhaps with your relationship or with some doctor's relationship with insurance companies that could affect whether or not you CT scan my dad? If you have a, well, let's say a minor suspicion that he might have a clot. Part of it is money and part of it is resources. For example, if you've got a busy ED and there's a hundred people in there being seen, 
the CT scanners being used for PE and all kinds of things. And so it's money and it's also using your resources carefully. But no, I would never think about money when I really thought someone had PE. I think in general, Steve makes a good point. You've got to take that into consideration. But when it gets down to it with an individual patient, to me, I will never, ever not get a test because I think it might cost me a little more if I have some doubt. But there is another consideration, and that is, if so the lay public may say, well, listen, if I'm a little short of breath and I'm having some chest pain, everybody should just get a CT angiogram and, and delineate, is this a pulmonary embolism, is it not? But the reality is the dye, the contrasts that are being given with CT scans actually can have a deleterious effect. It can cause some kidney damage. And you don't want to, in a cavalier fashion, start scanning everybody that comes in because you don't want to miss a pulmonary embolism and wind up causing a certain percentage of patients to have serious kidney damage that may or may not be reversible because you wanted to be super meticulous about you know, making sure you're scanning everybody. So, so medicine, granted, should not be, certainly in this country, we should not be thinking resources first by any means. But we do want to be judicious in our testing because some of the testing can have some negative impact on our patients' well-being as well. You've got to screen people. You've got, you're absolutely right. So you've got to look at that serum creatinine, look at the kidney test. If it's too high, we can't do the CT. There is another test you can do called the VQ scan, the ventilation perfusion scan. Very good test. Uh, not as accurate as a CT scan, especially if the x-ray is already abnormal or the patient has other kinds of lung problems, but still a good test. But you got yeah, you're right. You've got to look at the lab test, make sure the kidney that's normal or near normal, or, or you can't do the CT and you may have to empirically treat someone if you think they might have PE until you can do a scan. You may have to wait a day sometimes to get the kidneys better. So can I just ask you guys about the treatment for just a second? Because logic tells me that if you guys treat a blood clot with a blood thinner, it would seem that that is going to reduce the size of the blood clot, right? Kind of thin it out. And it would seem that it could then get dislodged and actually move into a more destructive location. They do a couple of things, Bill. They, they don't actually break the clot down themselves, at least the, the ones we usually use. They prevent the body from forming more clot, which is helpful. They allow the clot to stabilize by keeping it from growing. It sticks to the wall and is less likely to break off as it stabilizes like this. The other thing it does is by thinning the blood, it allows the blood to flow better. So these remaining channels you have open, you get blood through better. You've got a blocked off artery. The heart can't pump the blood as well. If you can open up some channels by making the blood thinner, it gets through better. So it can help even without affecting the clot directly. But it takes time for your own body's fibrinolytic system or, or clot busting system to kind of break down these clots. And the blood thinners will give you time for that to happen. But it does happen. You can treat someone and, and they may still have another blood clot or form one. But generally speaking, once they get on that, the clot stabilizes in size, doesn't get bigger. And one thing we've learned is blood thinners save lives. It's one of the dogmatic things we can say about blood clots is as soon as you get someone on a blood thinner, their chance of dying gets lower. It's been shown in one nice uh, research study by a colleague published in Chest, one of our journals in 2010. If you're on a blood thinner with an, an adequate level, uh, within 24 hours, your chances of dying are far, far lower than if you're not. And once you're on a blood thinner, very often, my dad in his case, I think warfarin, was that it, Steve? Yeah. We didn't have the DOAX at the time that your father was first placed on uncommitted. Okay. But basically, once you're on blood thinners, you kind of stay on blood thinners. Is that the case? We're doing that more and more nowadays, Bill. But I'll tell you, we try to divide clots into 
uh, what we call provoked and unprovoked. That's a little bit simplified, but the bottom line is if you have a really good reason for a clot, you have a hip or knee replacement and you get a PE, a blood clot, usually we'll treat you for three months, sometimes six, unless you have other concomitant risk factors. If you fly from Paris to LAX and get a clot, we know that plane flights increase the risk, risk of clotting, but to me, that's a minimal increased risk. I've flown my 4 million miles of American Airlines. I've never had a clot. I think when people are more susceptible, increase their risk and lower the threshold, and they may get a clot. Someone that's the only reason they get a clot is because they're flying. I'd be inclined to treat them long-term. I wouldn't say forever, but I'd say indefinitely. Forever is a long time. And what we can do now, what we've learned with these new drugs that Steve mentioned called the DOAX, is we can drop the dose at six months and reduce the risk of bleeding dramatically and still offer protection. So now kind of a new paradigm is to consider many patients, treat them a little longer. If someone comes in and they have a clot and their only risk factor is they're obese, we might say, well, we're gonna keep you on this drug. We'll drop the dose at six months. If you lose weight, we'll take you off it. But if you don't, we're gonna keep you on this load. So there's a lot more versatility nowadays with these new drugs. Okay, well, Vic, we're going to take about a 30-second break here. And when we come back, I'd like to talk a little about pulmonary hypertension. We'll be right back. A Moment of Your Time, a new podcast from Kurt Co. Media. Currently 21 years old, and today I'm going to read a poem. felt like magic extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my spine. You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my dream. Her fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being it's questioned. It's going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies. Wonders to whom she should give the second device. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find the beauty of rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in front of you. And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kirkco.com/slash a moment of your time. All right, Vic. Pulmonary hypertension, I'm assuming that is high blood pressure specifically in the lungs. How is that different than plain old high blood pressure? Sure. So yeah, with high blood pressure, you know, you measure your blood pressure in your arm. It's, it's 120 over 80. When the heart's squeezing, it's 120. When it's relaxed, it's 80. And in the lungs, you have a separate circulation. Normally in the, in the lungs, the pressure is much lower because the blood vessels are very distensible. They can open up. They can handle more flow. The pressure might be 20 over 10, much lower pressure. Different things can make this pressure go up, and we call that pulmonary hypertension. Now, I had a patient of mine who's become actually a very good friend of the family, and she had a pregnancy, and right after she delivered, suddenly became short of breath, and she was diagnosed as pulmonary hypertension. One of my competitors at the hospital said, you know, you have two years to live and you better get your affairs in order. And then I, I walked into the room and I said, okay, well, things have changed now. And, you know, we obviously put her on some of our newer medications. It's been 10 years and she's doing great. So maybe give a little bit of history about the earlier prognosis and where we are today in terms of the hope and the better outcomes that we're seeing relative to pulmonary hypertension. Sure. Well, Steve, I'm glad you were there to reassure her because you're absolutely right. Things have really changed. Mortality has really dropped over the years. Just in, in a very brief nutshell, we kind of have five classes of pulmonary hypertension. One's called pulmonary arterial hypertension. This is the kind that young women tend to get a little more commonly than men, unknown cause. 
Group two is from chronic heart disease. That's much more common. Maybe older folks get stiff hearts and get the heart has a little more trouble pumping. They get pulmonary hypertension. Group three, if you have emphysema, lung fibrosis, scarring in the lungs, you destroy many of these millions of blood vessels in your lungs and the pressure goes up and you have to just treat the underlying disease. Group four is blood clots. About one in a hundred patients with pulmonary embolism, like we were talking about, will go on and get chronic pulmonary embolism, and that's got to be treated differently. And then group five is kind of a miscellaneous group. So group one is the one I suspect uh, your patient had. It can be what we call idiopathic pulmonary arterial hypertension. Young women, probably four women for every man that gets it, unknown cause, sometimes brought out by pregnancy. And in the old days, we had no treatments. First patient I saw in 1982, his name was Gary. He was a minister from South Carolina. Again, I was an intern. He had severe pulmonary hypertension of unknown cause. Our attending physician very insightfully sent him to Bartley Griffith in Pittsburgh, who had already done about seven or eight heart-lung transplants. Gary got a heart-lung transplant and survived a good three or four more years after that. Now we rarely have to do heart-lung transplants for pulmonary hypertension. And if we do, patients do much better. Nowadays, the idea is we have medications we've studied over the years. It was 1996 we published the first paper on using a prostacyclin drug, IV, for pulmonary hypertension. We published in the New England Journal. We studied 80 patients, and 40 of those patients didn't get the drug. Eight of them died within 12 weeks. The patients that did get the drug all survived. We learned a lot. We started doing more and more treatment with that drug, IV, with a pump. 2002, we came up with another drug, pill, and so on over the years. Now we've got about 14 pulmonary hypertension drugs. We combine them. We often have people on, on one or two or three at a time. And we've just done so much better than we used to do. So just like you told your patient nowadays, Steve, we can tell people that they can do well of a normal life. We don't really like them getting pregnant again if we try to talk them out of it. But patients can live a much more normal life now than they used to. Doctors, how do you test for this? I mean, you can't put a cuff around the lungs. So how, how do you know that someone has hypertension specifically in their lungs? It is harder, and it's, it's, it reminds me a lot of a more chronic form of something like pulmonary embolism. Pulmonary embolism, you often come in the emergency department suddenly short of breath. Something just happened. With pulmonary hypertension, it's often slowly over months someone notices, I can't walk my dog as far. I'm a little more short of breath walking up the steps. So you see almost uniformly chronic shortness of breath is worsened over time, usually at least months. And again, there's a failure to diagnose in a lot of cases. You're told you've gained weight, you're, dis- you're deconditioned, et cetera. But what you do, Bill, one of the key tests, well, you examine someone, and if you carefully listen, you hear a lot loud heart sounds. You hear this blood's being pumped into the lungs, the pulmonic valve, one of the heart valves is slammed shut by this high pressure, you're a loud second heart sound. If you pick that up, you do more tests. If you don't hear that, you still think about doing an echocardiogram. An echocardiogram is, is the kind of the pivotal test that gives you a really good clue if you got it. And then we do a heart catheterization to prove it. But you're, you're, you're right, Bill. You've got to suspect it first. Then do consider doing an echocardiogram, and you'll be most of the way there. Are there any thoughts about what predisposes one individual to this disease versus another? Well, I think, it's, I think there's truly some genetics. With this group one pulmonary retention, it's often undiagnosed, unknown cause. It can be due to certain connective tissue diseases, lupus, scleroderma, things like this. It can be from a hole in the heart, congenital heart disease. HIV, we learn, can cause pulmonary hypertension. But again, in terms of predispositions, the classic patient that gets pulmonary arterial hypertension of unknown cause probably has genetic, some genetic abnormalities, a BMPR2 gene mutation, ALK1 mutation, 
certain mutations that some people have, they don't completely penetrate. You might get this mutation, not get pH. We're still understanding, learning more about the genetics. But certainly what I can say is just because someone gets it doesn't mean other people in the family will. I've taken care of many families with pulmonary hypertension. One was notably a young woman, 40 years old, that got pulmonary hypertension. And two years later, we diagnosed her 80-year-old grandfather with the same kind of pulmonary hypertension. So it's fascinating. But what we can tell our, parent, our patients and reassure them is the vast majority of them will not get it if they have a family member that has it. So while it may be genetic, it doesn't mean everyone's going to actually get the disease itself. So because it's on your radar, probably more than everybody else's, are you seeing more pulmonary hypertension in COVID and post-COVID long haulers, or is there not that association? Yeah, it's a great question, Steve. You know, I think it's a little early to know. So far, we haven't seen much of it. We've seen patients that have chronic scarring lung problems that could easily get pulmonary hypertension. This keeps progressing. Uh, so far, though, we haven't seen, we've seen this blood clotting problem we talked about, but so far we haven't seen or proven that patients are going in to get chronic pulmonary embolism with pulmonary hypertension or getting any other form of it, like group three from chronic scarring. But I think it might be too soon to know, Steve, and maybe in the next six months or year, we'll learn more about this if it takes longer to evolve. I can't help but bring my dad back into this. And I know both of you guys have had to deal with this quite a bit. And that's the balancing act between the treatment that you would like to administer for a variety of these diseases and someone's kidney function and whether or not they're capable of withstanding the treatment that would be best for dealing with pulmonary hypertension or any other lung issues. Have there been any advancements in the last number of years that helps you navigate those balancing acts? Yeah, I think the, the idea of, of kidney function and liver function too is a balancing act because you know the kidneys and liver are so important for metabolizing certain drugs. Some drugs are metabolized almost exclusively by the kidney, some by the liver, some by both. What we don't want is a beneficial drug to build up in the bloodstream and cause problems because you've got too much of it. And we usually fine-tune these drugs and we titrate them up to a certain dose, for example, for pulmonary hypertension, but not beyond that. So a careful physician is going to check a patient's blood test periodically every three to six months, making sure that kidney function's okay, liver function's okay, and we don't have to make adjustments. But we do have new drugs now. For example, the prostanoid drugs. We've got IV, inhaled, oral, subcutaneous, uh, one of the strongest medicines we have for pulmonary hypertension. And that drug, fortunately, is not metabolized by the kidneys and you can use it indiscriminately in patients that have kidney problems. So in the blood clotting world, we've learned you have to be a little careful with the DOACs, these newer drugs that Steve alluded to earlier. One of them, you have got to stop if the kidney function gets too severe. The other one, you're probably okay, even with severe renal failure, if you dose it carefully. So Vic, before we leave, I just wanted to ask you, over the course of the last, let's say, three or four years, what are the biggest breakthroughs that have helped you with your specialty? And as a warning, I'm then going to ask you for the next three or five years, what are your expectations? I think in the past, if you want to go 10 years, the DOACs, we used to use this drug called Cumin that you mentioned earlier, difficult drug. I mean, we used it for 50 years, good drug, but you give someone an extra dose of Tylenol every day for three days, their, their blood gets way too thin. You put them on a different drug, it gets too thick. They eat too much greens, they, their blood gets too thick. The DOACs have very few drug interactions, a few, a few critical drug interactions people need to know about, but very few. They're much easier to use than we used to. And we don't need to monitor. We don't need a blood test. We don't need a PTINR every week, every two weeks, or every month with these new drugs. So these DOACs have really revolutionized 
optimized practice and made them much easier in the blood clotting realm. Another area in pulmonary embolism has been we're learning how to treat blood clots that are really big ones causing big problems without using high doses of dangerous drugs that can cause bleeding, without using clot busters or TPA. We can use lower doses by putting an IV or a catheter in the lung and putting low doses in the lung, or even just putting a catheter in and suctioning the clot out. We're still learning when that's necessary. We don't want to overdo it. So those have been big advances too in the blood clotting world. In pulmonary hypertension, we've had new drugs. We have three classes of drugs now, the prostanoids, the endothelin receptor antagonists, and the PD-5 inhibitors. And a, and a nice paper was just published in the New England Journal with a new drug called Sotorecept. even has a little bit different mechanism. And we've got several other drugs uh, like this that may be coming soon. So I think that we've, we've just kept pace. I kind of feel like we're surfing and just staying on the edge of the wave, just able to kind of keep up with some of these diseases. Vic, thank you so much for joining us today. We certainly appreciated it. How can our listeners follow you if they want to connect? I'm on Twitter, uh, Vic Tapson. I don't get a chance to get on his office. I like to, but I try to say something profound every once in a while. My email address is a typical Cedars email address, victor.tapson at cshs.org. Vic, thank you for joining us. And of course, Dr. Tabak, my good friend, thank you for doing these shows. We're Still Practicing is produced and edited by A.J. Mosley. Music for We're Still Practicing is composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. Don't forget to hit that follow button so you don't have to hunt around for our next episode. We'll catch you next time, everybody. From Kirkco Media, media for your mind.